Well, I hope to give you meat in due season today. Pentecost is coming up. It's just next weekend. Uh, God willing, plans should continue. I'll be in uh, Canada with my wife. We'll be speaking to folks in Toronto. I'll tell them. They're hopeful I'll bring back as much maple syrup as they'll let me, uh, let me bring to all of you there. But it's still that season. And sometimes it really might just be me, and maybe I'm condemning myself by saying this. And if so, just don't tell me, because uh, then I'll feel bad. But sometimes it seems like Pentecost is sort of the uh, stereotypical uh, neglected stepchild of the holy days. And I'm not against stepchildren. I was also stepchild myself. I have a stepfather. But the, the one that just, yeah, just doesn't get thought of for some reason all the time. The spring holy days, uh, they're coming up and we're, we're throwing out leaven and we're working really hard. And Passover, we're, it's emphasized to us that we need to be praying and examining ourselves. And we're just really gunned up for the spring holy days. And then the fall holy days, you know, it kicks off with atonement, which we're always excited about. Yes, going hungry. Yes. You know, we look forward to that. Well, we may not look forward to that, but still it's something, right? It's definitely say this. It's on your radar screen. I know that if your parents two weeks beforehand, you had your kids start and ask, now, how long to atonement is it? How long is that? And they're taking an extra bite, you know, sort of in preparation. Uh, but then you have the Feast of Trumpets which we love thinking about. We love, it's not exciting thinking about the things coming upon this world, but it is a joy to think of Jesus Christ coming to this earth. Finally, our reward being received, being transformed, being a part of the kingdom of God for all eternity. The Feast of Tabernacles, uh, fun on earth, kind of picturing a beautiful time to come, the millennium. We get excited about that. And of course, the last great day, we have our weepy moments, thinking of those that we look forward to seeing again. The Holy Days have all these things. Then right smack in the middle is Pentecost. And sometimes if we're not careful, the day arrives, it's that morning, and there hasn't been any thought that Pentecost is coming other than the kids asking, well, why are we going to church early? Ah, it's Pentecost, it's two services. Oh, yeah, okay, right, you know, and so then we do. But it's one of God's holy days. He put that there for a reason. Every single holy day is there for a reason and worth our time to meditate on. Each one has a richness and a depth that we will not exhaust in this lifetime in terms of what it can teach us and what's worth meditating on. Pentecost in particular, this day and age, there's a special importance, at least that, that I see in Pentecost. Uh, I want to remind you of what Dr. Meredith continues to emphasize. I wanted to grab a quote, and the only burden I had was just picking one quote, uh, because Dr. Meredith has been on this like a, uh, like a dog on a bone. I might sound terrible. I mean that in a good way, Dr. Mary, just so you know. But I mean, he has really emphasized this for year after year after year. And if God is moving him to emphasize this to us, I think we need to listen. And I think we need to pay attention. Uh, the quote that I'm actually going to use is from the January, February 2010 Living Church News in his personal. And he writes there, speaking of the gifts of the Spirit. Speaking of these miraculous things that God has worked through the church and the people of the church from time to time, Dr. Meredith writes, we so very much need these gifts to begin to have the real impact on our brethren and especially on the world that we need in order to truly finish the job. So I beseech you, that's not a that's not a lackadaisical kind of word. We don't tend to use that word uh, just loosely. We don't say, oh, honey, I'm famished. 
I beseech you to bring me a roast beef sandwich. You know, if, if someone is moved to say that, it's because it's important. It's because they truly feel to the depth of their being that this is something I need you to listen to. This is something I need you to do. And he says, I beseech you to join with me in being one of those striving to go all out in seeking God and trying in every way we can to give our lives to him in zealous obedience and service and to cry out for the gifts of God's Holy Spirit for his work, his ministry and all his people. And y'all have heard this same crying out consistently over years. Uh, every council of elders meeting, it's an emphasis at the beginning and it's an emphasis at the end. And I hope that we're all doing that. I know I try to admonish myself. I need to do that more. And I believe Pentecost is one of God's holy days that can help kind of emphasize this more. Pentecost, picturing as it does, spoiler alert for whoever's giving the sermon uh, next weekend, Pentecost being that day when God gave his Holy Spirit to his church, when he empowered his people in a remarkable, divine, miraculous way. And so I feel that Pentecost can benefit from that sort of extra time that we would spend, uh, that extra dedication to plumbing the passages and to meditating upon the day. And that's really my goal today. What I'd like to do in this sermon as meet and do season and preparing us for Pentecost is to take a look at the day both in the distant past and then the not quite as distant past. The Bible records for us a number of Pentecost, but two in particular that stand out. And I want to take a look at both of those Pentecost and I want to compare them and I'd like to contrast them and meditate on the similarities and differences to see perhaps what we can glean from them. The title today is A Tale of Two Pentecosts. A Tale of Two Pentecosts. With apologies to Charles Dickens. All right, the first I'd like to look at is a Pentecost approximately 3,500 years ago. Raise your hand if anybody remembers that one. Were you there? Anybody? Okay, just kidding. Just checking. Some of you have been in the church a whole lot longer than I have. Uh, let's turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Now, let me, if, if you will give me permission, I am not going to take the time to give all the evidence we have to give good reason to believe that Israel gathering at Mount Sinai for the giving of the Ten Commandments happened on Pentecost. I'd like to save that and save some time uh, in the sermon. And I have to be honest, I have read more than one argument and not all the arguments were the same. Uh, and yet they always come up with Pentecost being the day the Ten Commandments were given. Even back when we thought Pentecost was on a Monday, you know, it still sort of uh, worked out that way. Partially because there are some assumptions to be made. If you take a look at it, you have to figure, well, this probably took a day. That's a reasonable amount of time. However, what I've seen, because I've looked at a lot of different arguments from a lot of different uh, ministers over the years, the one thing that absolutely can be said for certain is that the Ten Commandments were, if they weren't given on Pentecost, then somehow God missed it and gave them right before or right after. And I don't know about you, but that's not the kind of God I believe in. 
I just don't see God planning this event. He hit Passover, boom, right on time. You know, he took everybody out of Egypt and brought them to the mountain and had them prep. He could have picked a different number of days, but he picked a particular number of days, had them prep for that one day. And I just don't see God descending on Mount Sinai, really the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, and then looking at his watch with a little date on there and said, oh, oh, if I had... If I had just done this a little bit earlier, it would have been Pentecost. What was I thinking? And as they watched, the cloud kind of goes back up and said, sorry, you know, coming back, uh, coming back a different day. That doesn't make any sense to me. God's the God who's on time. We may wish he was earlier sometimes as we reckon things, but he's always on time. God works that way. And it's tradition. You look at Jewish tradition. The Ten Commandments were given on Pentecost. And when you work things out, truly, that is around exactly when that was. And so we have the giving of the Ten Commandments on Pentecost. And it was really quite an event. I, there's a part of me that wishes Hollywood would make another Ten Commandments movie. Uh, we just watched the Ten Commandments movie, the, uh, uh, the Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille, uh, not too long ago during the, uh, around the spring holy days with Charlton Heston, you know, and uh, Yul Brenner, a fantastic bald man that he was. And uh, it's wonderful. It's a pageantry. It's amazing. It moves your emotions. It truly is a, a great film. But there's a part of me with the digital graphics and such that we have today that can make things so photorealistic that I just wish they'd take another crack at it. Not these terrible movies they're doing these days, but just really pour themselves into making this come to life. But there's two things that hold me back from even turning that into a prayer and asking God to do so. One, because frankly, I do think they'd mess it up. I think it would become one of those terrible movies. Uh, they'd have God show up and you'd be all impressed and then out from the cloud would walk this little green alien or something and it would not, it would not be God. But then secondly, when you really read the account, I honestly don't think they would do it justice. I just don't. When you look at what God did, he knows how to make an impression. And on this Pentecost 3,500 years ago, God wanted to make an impression. Not just for show, not just because he's flamboyant, but for purpose, as we actually see in the text. So let's go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 19, the chapter before Exodus 20. That's how math works. Uh, the chapter before the Ten Commandments are given. And let's take a look at what God is doing. Exodus chapter 19, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Eternal called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings to myself, and bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. What you see here, if you read the, the whole passage, and we definitely will read more, is Moses actually going back and forth a bit uh, between God and the people and carrying various messages. And it's important to remember these when it comes to comparing and contrasting that we'll do at the end. Now, let's go and continue verse 7. It says, so Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the eternal had commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, all that the eternal has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the eternal. Now, let me highlight something, and it's kind of related to what's coming up next. Did God not hear actually when the people said that? You know, he sent Moses from the mountain to the people and the people responded and said, all that the eternal has said, we will do. And yet Moses still had to make the walk back and go up the mountain. And you think there was ever a point where he thought, well, he's omniscient. Didn't he hear him? I mean, really, do I really need to keep going back and forth like this? It's kind of tiring. I'm an old man. You know, actually, his strength was not diminished in certain things. But still, you know, it's like, why am I running back and forth? I do personally think that that fed part of the message that we're actually about to see. Notice the people said that, but God still had the word carried back and forth through Moses. Because part of the lesson of how God works is that he speaks in different ways at different time through different people and different means. You know, he spoke to Moses through a burning bush. Uh, Later, he speaks to him, you know, from the ark. I've heard ridiculous comments that the ark was designed as some kind of magical radio to talk to aliens that's false just so you know you know when you edit this sermon for anything make sure you don't include the part where i said that's false um we know he talked to elijah through a still small voice you know god accomplishes his his communication not simply to communicate the message but to communicate something broader in terms of his choices and why he's doing that. Like in Elijah's case, a good example. He has this storm and all these magnificent things going around around Elijah who was fearful, and then he just gives him this still small voice. This still small voice. You know, why did he choose that? Why was he choosing to use Moses in this way? He spoke to Abraham actually person to person, right? Actually came and walked up to Abraham with a couple of angelic beings. Uh, Not only a lesson to Abraham, but a lesson to us. Who else has God done that with any time recently? Please don't raise your hand. I don't want to know. Uh, Rob McNair and Mr. Mike DeSimone are both in the congregation. They can talk to you later. Uh, but God chooses to speak to different people in different ways at different times. Here he was using Moses. And this even factors into his choice for the remainder of the day. Uh, let's continue in verse 9. He says here in verse 9, The eternal said to Moses, behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. It actually wasn't all just about the Ten Commandments, even though clearly that's the centerpiece. He also wanted to make such an impression that the people would realize, I'm using you, Moses. He wanted to make that impression on the people, that God chooses whom God chooses, and he had chosen Moses. 
And again, you don't have to take my word for that. Just you know, like the fellow on the television screen said a little while ago, you know, believe your Bible. That's what he says. He says there, I'm doing this so that they will believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the eternal. So what we have next is we're going to talk about their preparation. Because God is coming and he doesn't just show up, ring the doorbell. The people have an obligation to prepare for that. It wasn't just, hey, let him know I'm coming, and then poof, he was there. There actually was something on their part to do. We see that in the next few verses, uh, starting in verse 10. It says, Then the Eternal said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Eternal will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So this mountain was going to become radically sacred space. The God of heaven, the creator of all things, personally was going to descend on this mountain. And anyone not worthy, not invited by God to come into contact with that mountain was going to die. And had to be put to death. In a way you couldn't even go up to do it. Uh, you had to actually do it at a distance. So you yourself also would not violate God's sacred space. Uh, so anyway, it was three days, right? What were those three days like for the people? You ever think about that? It's, it's good sometimes not to just kind of go through these passages and not to actually take the time to meditate on it. What if, for instance, Dr. Meredith got up and told all the rest of us, by the way, God is personally coming to Charlotte. Jesus Christ is going to speak to us in three days. So get ready. You know, be safe driving home. Uh, you know, don't forget your things here and uh, that you get to lock up. Oh, you know, what would those three days have been like? What would have been on your mind, right? Would it just have been another day of laundry? Hey, honey, how many days is it? Just got one day left? All right, that's enough time for the whites uh, or whatever. You know, it would have been an amazing three days. Personally, I would have been getting a little antsy over those three days. I'd seen what he did in Egypt. I'd seen this vast body of water been Split in two, standing like a vast wall on one side and the other. And this God that was in a pillar of fire was actually going to show up and talk to me and my family and the people around me personally. Can you imagine what those three days were like? The anticipation that would have been building uh, personally, I think it was phenomenal, especially you keep going out every day. Day one, you go out and. Well, you know, the clouds are still out. The birds are singing. It's a beautiful day on the Sinai. Uh, it just seems like normal. You go out again. You keep going out every day. You've got to run an errand, and you're still looking at the mountain a little warily. Uh, it still looks like the same mountain, you know, that it was the other day. Until one day, maybe you wake up, and it's very different outside. And you walk out, 
and the mountain as as if it is a place from another planet, and everything is different. So let's talk about that a little bit and continue. Let's jump to verse 16. It says, And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now, the sound of the trumpet, uh, I should have double-checked before I come up, but my understanding is it is shofar. It's that, that sharp, piercing blast noise. But that's part of what's interesting about this. I've tried to look for mountain scenes to help me picture uh, uh, Sinai and what that would have been like. And the closest I can come are some of these fantastic volcanic eruptions. Uh, they're just spewing ash and smoke into the sky, but there's also this strange light behind it, and you see lightning coursing through uh, the ash because of the electrical discharge. You know, all of that, even though I doubt it was as intense as this, can happen as natural phenomenon. But you know what's not natural phenomenon? The sound of a trumpet. When you hear a trumpet sounding, I say out of a volcano, that's not just, well, that's the strangest thunder I ever heard. You know what that is. You had been hearing shofar blast for various reasons during your journey. There was someone assigned to blow the trumpet blast, uh, to gather your people together. Well, there was a shofar blast gathering people together that morning. But it was coming out of the cloud of the mountain. And it was loud enough and piercing enough that millions of people could hear now, that said, when it sends all the people, I'm not going to give you a very specific number because I like to hedge uh, my bets, so to speak. I've heard various numbers tossed around for how many Israelites there were. Give me a broad hedge. Let's say two to six million people. Multiple millions. There's a vast number of people. And they hear this sound and they are terrified. They're terrified. I mean, let me just say just here, what if out there in that hallway right now, we heard this piercing trumpet blast. I'm just kidding. I didn't get someone to do that. But wouldn't that have been great in this sermon if I'd actually thought to have somebody do that? I'm making a mental note for next time. That's actually a very good idea. But let's say I had done that, and all of a sudden you heard this noise. Wouldn't that be a little nerve-wracking? It's not normal. Here you have a mountain that is thundering and quaking, and out of it is this sound that's clearly being produced by an intelligence. Uh, and so it says, you know, kind of no duh, uh, the people were trembling uh, at this point. Let's continue in verse 17. Now it says, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. So he brought the people out of the camp, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. This is a vast crowd. Uh, how big was that? Well, let me just go real big and use that six million figure just, just for kicks. Um, I did a back-of-the-envelope kind of estimate, and so it's probably off in a lot of different ways. But don't try to correct me now. Correct me later. Um, you have all the people there. Just simplify and imagine kind of a wedge, kind of like in a theater style, that maybe there was kind of a closer focal point at the mountain, and then the crowd perhaps spread out a bit, because I used sort of a quarter of a circle to do the estimate. And let's say you had 6 million people crammed close enough that everybody just had a two-by-two-foot Two foot by two foot square. I'd like to think we had a little more space. I'd have been rubbing up against my fellow Israelite a little bit much if that's the only space I had. But you could cram, if you crammed six million people into kind of a quarter circle space, 
uh, quarter of uh, the inside of a circle with a two by just two by just really virtually shoulder to shoulder. Uh, even crammed that close together, you're looking at about a mile deep. That is, the person at the front of the crowd is about a mile away from what you are in the back. Now, why is that kind of important if you're really trying to imagine the scene? Have you ever been someplace where a no- you see something make a loud noise at a distance and it takes time for the sound to reach you? I remember as a child, the first time I saw a band practicing and a guy was clapping his hands and then it took just a few seconds and I'd hear the clap. It's like magic. How'd that guy do that? Well, it's not magic. It's science. Light travels almost instantaneously. But sound takes a while to get there. That's why when you hear thunder, it's after the lightning, right? And some of you know the old rule of thumb. Uh, what's the old rule of thumb? Well, it depends on different places. But generally for me, it was always you count five seconds and that's a mile. So you see a flash of lightning and ten seconds later you hear the thunder. Then you can roughly estimate that lightning strike was about two miles away. Um, here, if they were at least just a mile deep, then anything visibly that happened on the mountain, it would take about, say, five seconds for them to hear it. So what if there was this gigantic lightning boom on the mountain? You ever heard one of those lightning booms that makes your joints just a little bit weak? And you think, ah, you know, we're all going to die. You know, what was that? Well, the thing is, the people at the front would have heard that first. And you would have seen this wave of people reacting, coming towards you until, boom, all of a sudden you heard the noise yourself. Because you can see the people reacting to the sound because it's reaching all of them first, like in a wave. Uh, try to keep that in mind as we're painting, as we're painting the picture. Uh, so I've lost track. So here in uh, Exodus chapter 19, and so we have, we just read in verse 17, all the people were brought to the foot of the mountain. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the eternal the ever-living one the one who had become jesus christ but was the god of israel it says the eternal descended upon it in fire its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly i personally think there's part of the reason god picked a mountain is just because i don't know for me mountains picture stability There's a reason Prudential would pick uh, the Rock of Gibraltar or so as a picture of their company. Because when it comes to insurance, uh, you want it to look like something stable. Uh, You don't want it to look like a Q-tip or something. Uh, You want something that pictures, I can depend on this. This is a mountain of a company. And yet this mountain that would normally be the picture of stability and solidity was trembling itself. The mountain itself was heaving back and forth with the power and the force of the one who was descending upon it. A being whose power against which the thing the mountain has could ever compare. And so you see this and it says he was descending in fire and yet other verses just like this make it clear that it was also surrounded in smoke. So personally in the Steven Spielberg movie in my mind that I have worked out for this as I meditate on it year after year. That I imagine it all going up and then just belching flame every once in a while kind of rolling out of the dark clouds. Where you can see whatever is making that flame is getting closer and closer to the mountain. And so the eternal is descending upon Mount Sinai. And in verse 21, we read that... Oh, no, sorry, sorry. I got ahead of myself. So verse 19, it says, When the blast of the trumpet sounded long 
and became louder and louder. Now, please keep in mind, this was already a trumpet blast that people could hear easily a mile deep and made them tremble. And made them tremble in fear. But that was only the beginning. The dial was still at one, you know, for that. He was going to 11 on the dial. He was going louder and louder. So as it gets louder and louder and this being is descending more and more closely to the mountain, it says in verse 19, it became long and became louder and louder. It says Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Now, it doesn't say what they said. Now, personally, for the movie in my mind, that's disappointing, which means I have to take some creative license. So I'm about to say, imagine they said something. They said something. It's recorded. But what was it that they said? Uh, The only thing I really regret, because I think this is really plausible, but I have no imaginations. This is actually what they said. If I'm there in the first resurrection with all of you nice folks, I hope to ask. And he'll say, that's not at all what we said. You're you're an idiot. Uh, But I do like to imagine something to try to make that scene more real. The only my only regret is that I'm stuck doing it with my voice. You know, I again, okay, mental note uh, could have asked Mr. Hernandez to fill in, you know, for this particular part. Or I was mentioning uh, to someone earlier, uh, if any of you know Dan Dever uh, in Houston. Oh, if I could have just gotten a recording of Dan Dever or something, this kind of deep, you know, sort of Barry White kind of a kind of voice. I don't have that. So please forgive me for this part. I won't be able to fill in. But it says that as this entity, this being, this cosmic, eternal, great one had descended upon the mountain and the people are terrified. It says that Moses called out and God answered him by voice. As I imagine it, I imagine Moses saying, eternal, are you here? And out of the cloud rolls this deep, thunderous voice just saying, I am. And it just, just rolls over the people. But remember the people at the back of the crowd. All they would see is the people a mile away at the front starting to cower and starting to come. And it's just coming and it's just coming closer. And the dust is kicking up and it hits them. This I am. God was saying, I am God. The Bible talks about men being loosened at the waist and the knees because they have been terrified by what they have experienced. And God was making an impression with this. The eternal one, your creator, is here. And so it continues. There was more to come, uh, actually, for them. This was quite a Pentecost, uh, you know, if you think about it. Uh, It says in verse 20, then the eternal came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain and the eternal called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. That is a brave dude. Uh, Anyway, so Moses went up. He knew God. But could you imagine the impression on the people when they had been told not to go up to the mountain and they saw what was going on the mountain? Uh, and here goes Moses actually up that mountain. That would have made an impression. It says in verse 21, The Eternal said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Eternal, because he was literally right there in the cloud. And he didn't want people breaking through to, uh, to try to see him. He says, I warn the people lest they break through to gaze at the Eternal, and many of them perish 
Also let the priests who come near the eternal consecrate themselves, lest the eternal break out against them. But Moses said to the eternal, the people cannot come to the Mount uh, uh, Sinai, for you warned us, saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Uh, personally, I think this command not to come near the mountain, this is my judgment, was probably the least necessary command in the Bible. Uh, there's nothing I read in this description that made me think, oh, I want to go over to that mountain. I would love to stand there and die, you know, really, really quickly. Uh, and yet God was trying to make a point. Even if you wanted to in your imagination, you, you are not worthy. You cannot come here. Uh, this, is, this is not a place where you can actually be. And so we have this setting for the giving of the Ten Commandments. And so just for the sake of being complete here, I'd like to go ahead and actually read the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And let me say Pentecost is a wonderful season to do that. You know, we love the commandments. We profess our love for the commandments to people on television, in our writings. And I'm kind of surprised even at myself sometimes when I haven't gone back to read them for a good long time. And it makes me wonder just how important are they to me. Uh, Pentecost is a beautiful season for reading the commandments. So let's go through Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. And understand, they weren't hearing it like, you know, Mr. Smith up here behind the microphone. They were hearing this voice that with everyone coming across, was coming across in power and significance. I have heard, uh, maybe somebody could even find it for me because I haven't actually found that reference in a long time, and, and so perhaps I'm wrong. But I, there's at least, you know, there's a lot of traditions that religions tend to come up with that aren't necessarily true. I don't necessarily believe that this one is. But the Jewish tradition, a Jewish tradition I've heard was that the giving of the Ten Commandments was so powerful and so profound, and it was a moment when the people were in such proximity, direct connection to their creator that every giving of a commandment was so shocking that they virtually died on the spot and God had to miraculously keep them alive to be able to soak in the experience. I don't know that that's true, but I can at least appreciate what went into such a concept that this was an amazing moment. So Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the eternal your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the eternal your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the eternal your God in vain, for the eternal will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the eternal your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your maidservant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Eternal made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Eternal blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, 
that your days may be long upon the land which the eternal your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. It made an impression. Uh, Verse 18. We read, now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flash, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Can you imagine all of this going on during the giving of the Ten Commandments? It says in verse 19, they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. It was terrifying to them. And to whom did they turn? Moses. Because they were terrified. And what was part of God's purpose? That they hear you, Moses, and believe you forever. That was part of the lesson and they got it. It was a, uh, it was a lesson well received. Finally, to wrap up in verse 21, it says, I'm sorry, Moses actually said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. God wanted them to realize this wasn't just like the code of Hammurabi. This wasn't just like the the whatever moral collection of rules they may have had during their time in Egypt. This was their very creator who said, I'm telling you not to steal. Don't sin. Don't do that to yourself. Verse 21, so the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Now keep in mind, God could have done this completely differently, but God crafts these moments. He creates a particular circumstance for a reason. He is the great designer, and no one knows how to make an entrance like the ever-living one. Uh, Everything God does is for reason and for design. Uh, It's like we talk about actually during uh, baptism counseling. That every element of that, the going into the water, is for a reason. That's why it makes a difference whether you get sprinkled on or whether you go into the water. Because only one of those two truly matches the likeness of Christ's own burial. Uh, There's a reason there's a laying on of hands as a part of that ceremony. God isn't just being wasteful and flamboyant. He does everything he does for a reason. And that definitely includes that Pentecost 3,500 or so years ago. Now that said, the title of the sermon is a tale of two Pentecosts. So let's fast forward just a bit uh, to Pentecost 1,985 years ago. Some of you are checking my math right now, you sneaky person. Uh, So hopefully I got it right. If I didn't, tell me later. 31 A.D. Pentecost 31 A.D. And to do that, we need to turn to Acts chapter 1 first. Some of you are already turning to Acts chapter 1. Congratulations. This is where that happens. Acts chapter 1 and 2. We're going to start in Acts chapter 1. But Acts chapter 2 is actually where it happens. In Acts chapter 1, keep in mind that the being about whom we are about to read, the being who is about to speak to the disciples, is the same being. 
The same one who descended on Mount Sinai in flame and smoke and power and lightnings and thunder is the very same one standing before these men and making the statements he's about to say. So Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. It says, and being assembled together with them, speaking of Jesus Christ here, it says he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, well, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the disciples have to allow Christ to leave. He's received into the clouds and then they have to wait. Uh, there's an old tradition in Christianity out in the world that talks about tarrying as if tarrying is something special you do to receive the Holy Spirit. It's not what the word tarry means. It just means to wait. It means to allow time to pass in patience and preparation. And so they had to wait for the day of Pentecost because God knows what he's doing and God is always on schedule. So they're waiting. And by the way, I don't see in the words here where he says, wait till Pentecost. But they did know they were waiting. And so things do happen, however, on Pentecost. Now, again, can you imagine what those days must have been like? Where the Messiah, who you've seen resurrected, you've seen uh, that he has power and the rest, and says, I'm going to be giving you power. But I need you to wait in Jerusalem. What would that have been like day in and day out? Um, we know that it was diligent. We see uh, that they do take care of certain business here and there in preparation because they believed the promise. They believed the promise. And so they actually were preparing and working. Uh, even though the Holy Spirit had not been given yet, chapter 2 wasn't there yet, uh, we see them replacing Judas and making sure their number is complete and full. They spent that time getting the church ready. Doing, being in the kind of shape that they thought it needed to be as best they could. And we come to chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And it's a shorter account than what we read earlier from the older Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, the count was complete. They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now keep in mind, these were people like us. It's easy to think of them as if they're somehow different and strange. And sometimes you see movies and they depict them sort of talking in an odd way and not really being human like us. But they were like us. They had husbands and wives like us. They had children like us. They had their daily concerns. Uh, they got up that morning and saw a pimple on their forehead. Uh, they had real lives like we do. These were real people. And can you imagine what if that was here? Imagine if all of us were sitting here and out of nowhere we started to hear this amazing sound 
as if it were coming from heaven. This sound of a mighty rushing wind and just filling the room around us and reverberating in our ears. I mean, sadly, in today's day and age, I think a lot of our first thoughts would be terrorist attack. Uh, I do think, ah, you know, that's what that is. Because that's the kind of world that we live in. But that's not what that would be. Can you imagine that kind of sound and realize something is happening? Something big. So going to the next verse, it says, what else happens if the sound wasn't enough? Verse 3, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them. And can you imagine all of a sudden seeing that in this room? A bit unnerving, but exciting, right? To just see all of a sudden in the air around us these divided tongues of fire and flame. And you see them descending. So we had these divided tongues of fire sitting on all of these people. And it says what in verse 4? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Um, That's amazing. I am slowly trying to learn French and doing a terrible, terrible job. Uh, It's been on and off for about two years And uh, I think all I can say right now, uh, probably the most advanced sentence is, uh, uh, I can't actually put together an advanced sentence at all. Uh, I can say red apple, uh, uh, palm la rouge. Okay, that's really about it. Uh, Anyway, I know Mr. Hernandez catches me every once in a while and he'll kind of quiz me. And I know how to say I'm sorry, désolé, because I'm apologizing. I don't know more French yet. Uh, But it's going really pretty slow. Oh, wait. Je mange le pomme rouge. I'm eating a red apple. Hey, okay, there you go. There's a sentence. Um, That's been two years. Now, please don't think ill of me. I haven't been concentrating. I've had other things to do. But I have been slowly trying to learn. And yet all of them, in an instant, were speaking languages they had never known before in their life. You know, maybe one of them there uh, suddenly was speaking uh, a fluent Greek at a level he never had before, or a fluent Hebrew at a level he never had before, uh, was speaking Latin in the language of Rome. But not just those. When you look outside, the people that would be surrounding them, there are people from lands all over from different parts of Asia and all these different lands, and all of a sudden they're all speaking languages they've never known in their lives. And just as a side note, let me go ahead and point this out here. It's not directly connected to the sermon, but it is connected to the desire to have gifts in the church. It is amazing how the gifts God gives the church tend to be gifts for getting the truth out to the world. It's not really a selfish focus of gifts. It's always what is a sign to the world? What will this do for the gospel? What will this do for the work? And to me, it's powerful to recognize that the very first, the literally the very first gift given in the church was the power to take the gospel to the entire world. Again, I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think that's a coincidence. Regardless, let's go ahead and read the rest of the account, at least this part of it. Uh, It says that they were speaking all these different languages. Uh, Verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, because it wasn't just in the room, other people heard this sound. 
and become gathering. And what does it sound like to hear a tornado coming out of a room in a building? And so everyone is running to the building. It says, when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and heard them speak in his own language. Maybe you were nervous about coming to Jerusalem for the Pentecost season because you know you speak this rare language in your area, but you're, you're a faithful Jew and you're wanting to keep the holy day. And you're there with people and you haven't really been able to talk to anybody because you just don't speak the same language they do. And all of a sudden, here these men come out and they're telling you the things of God in that language you didn't expect to hear for the next week or two. It says they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? I'm a Texas Aggie. I come from Texas. Uh, and Texas A&M is the university everybody likes to make fun of. Not because we're not all brilliant and good looking, which we are, but because everybody apparently has to have someone. So Texas Aggies are who we like to make fun of. There's a lot of Aggie jokes out there people will tell. Now, who are selling those books? Aggies and making a lot of money. So that's kind of how that works. However, I always think of this comment as being kind of like, aren't this just a bunch of Aggies? You know, what is this? You know, just come out of the room. Look, aren't these just a bunch of Galileans? And yet... How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Uh, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. How amazing that must have been. It would have been kind of like the days they talked about of old, hearing a prophet come into your city, perhaps. And imagine what that must be like and having a room full of prophets in power that had never been seen before or even talked about in the past suddenly in your midst. It says, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking, saying, ah, they're full of new wine. The mocking continues 2,000 years later, but it doesn't change the truth of what is going on. Uh, what an absolutely stunning, stunning day. Uh, the, Peter gives a message. I'm not going to actually read all the message for the sake of time. Let's jump down towards the end. Uh, we will at least read here in verse 36. He wraps up his message and says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were moved in their spirit. God was working on that heart. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What do we do knowing that this is the case and that God is doing this? And he answered very plainly, verse 38, Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. Uh, we see at the end, it says, uh, just jumping there, verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And so a Pentecost, sometime later, and a very different Pentecost. 
but in a lot of ways the same. Maybe saying at the beginning this is going to be kind of a compare and contrast. Uh, maybe you already noticed some of the similarities uh, that are worth meditating on and thinking about. Uh, you had a group of people being called together by God into one location. Called to the mountain, here called to the place where the apostles were. You have God making a nation on both of those days. Both of those days. In fact, the language is actually kind of startling. Um, jump to back to Exodus chapter 19. In fact, I'm going to have you do maybe something a bit odd. Go to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19 and put your, hold your place there somehow so you can flip there quickly. And then I also want you to hold your place someplace else. So you have to have at least two fingers to accomplish uh, this task. Also, take a look at, keep uh, your place in 1 Peter chapter 2. I know this seems like a stunt. But when I do things like this, it helps, it helps it settle in my mind a little bit differently. Uh, it helps me realize God knows what he's doing. He's had a pattern from the beginning. Uh, so the second place is going to be 1 Peter chapter 2. All right, now we got the place in 1 Peter chapter 2, but still I'm holding that place. I'm going to go to Exodus chapter 19. What did God say before giving the Ten Commandments? What was he doing? Uh, let's read verses 5 and the beginning of 6. Exodus 19 and verse 5. God says concerning Israel, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now flip to Second Peter chapter 2, First Peter chapter 2, where we had our place. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. Actually, it wasn't 2 Peter, sorry. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. If I told you 2 Peter, I messed up. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, what does Peter say? He says, but you, the church, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Exactly the same words. That he said he was trying to accomplish on that earlier Pentecost. His own special people. That special treasure above all the earth. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We see in both Pentecost, God founding a nation. The physical nation of Israel. But now, at the beginning of that Pentecost, the spiritual nation of Israel. Full of brothers and sisters who will make up. The kingdom of God, making up now the body of Christ. You know, there are people in this room who are your brother and sister in a way that blood and DNA can never match. Nothing binds two people together as brother and sister like the Spirit of God. When you hear announcements about what's going on in other parts of the world with our brothers and sisters you may have never met, that is our brother and sister more deeply and more intimately in a very real way, a very eternal way than even physically our brothers and sisters because it's God's spirit that makes us brother and sister. Not to demean the bonds of brother and sister in the flesh, not at all, but hoping to magnify what it means to be a brother and sister in Christ. God was doing on that second Pentecost 
A very deep and spiritual version of what he was doing in the first. The children of Israel in the flesh at the mountain versus the spiritual children of Israel. Who if we are of faith, then the father of the faithful is our father. To me, it was interesting the command to wait and prepare. God is interesting in that way. Israel had to wait three days before God appeared. The apostles were told to wait uh, for the time uh, when those things are going to happen on Pentecost. You have a supernatural occurrence happening. This powerful noise, this sound of of wind and the rest. Uh, You had God descending from heaven in fire in both cases. The old Pentecost, you had this flaming something coming down upon the mountain that people could barely see. Here you had the flames descending from heaven upon the people there assembled. And you have God miraculously demonstrating in both cases whom he uses to give his message. God made it explicit. Again, I didn't make that part up in Exodus. And he said, I want the people to believe you, Moses. I want them to know that you are my messenger. That when you speak, you speak for me. That was a part of the entire reason God conducted things the way he did in Exodus. And yet God was doing the same thing at the second Pentecost we've talked about. What would you have thought of those men that came out of that building? They would be used by God's power in such a tremendous way. God wanted them to know. We know from scriptures the signs have a purpose for validating the message of the messenger. What this person is saying is true. And they didn't make it up. It came from God Almighty. That's part of the reason why the request to pray for those signs. Because those signs validate the message in a way that nothing, nothing else truly can. And he did it on that day. Part of the message of Pentecost, both Pentecost, was to whom are you listening? And who is truly set aside by me to carry that message? It's not popular these days in the broader collection of those called the church of God to think that's important. You'd have to throw out the Bible to decide that's not important. Because it is. But for those things that are similar in the days, at least for me personally, my meditations on the differences have been what have brought me, I think, some of the most learning and some of the things that have caused me to reflect on the role of God's Spirit in my life, perhaps, in a different way. Uh, for instance, the previous event had an audience of millions there. Here, it began in this one room. A much more kind of intimate space. Uh, in particular, 3,500 years ago at Sinai... It said there, the eternal descended upon the mountain in fire, right? And what did he say? No one can come to the mountain. I'm here. You can't be here. There is this kind of gulf of righteousness between us. It's not that God is a snob in any way. God longs to be with his people. Mr. Nathan had an excellent sermon about that uh, during the spring holy days. God longs to be with his people and to dwell amongst them. He didn't have to come down to the mountain at all. And yet there is this gulf of righteousness between him and the people. And he says, this mountain, because of my presence, is sacred and is holy. You cannot come near. You can see the fire. You can see it at a distance. But you cannot come close. In fact, if you do come close, you die. And yet, on that day, that second Pentecost later, Fire still came from heaven, but it descended upon each 
individual person in a very intimate kind of way. Such a contrast between the two. Understand it was still the same power and spirit at work. It wasn't like a different kind of Holy Spirit. It wasn't like during the first Exodus, that was the real Holy Spirit that shakes mountains and shoots fire and causes smoke to rise and a trumpet to sound. But this was like Holy Spirit 2.0. It's so much more gentle. Just a gentle flickering flame above your head. It's not nearly the same. It was exactly the same Spirit. In fact, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Because this is what I have to remind myself on Pentecost and what meditating upon these, the difference in these two Pentecosts helps me to remember. Philippians in chapter 2. What happened to the Israelites when they saw this display of God's power at a distance, far away from them, with physical barriers saying you can't even get close, even if you were delusional enough to want to get close. They saw that power at a distance and they trembled in fear and yet philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 paul says therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed not as in my presence only but now much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling the need for righteous godly fear has not changed The fact that there should be godly, righteous fear before God has not changed. But what is the difference? It's no longer the power at a distance in the mountain. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you. Both to will and to do for his good pleasure. That is part of what I try to remind myself of on Pentecost. That that very display of magnificent power that for the Israelites must have made them wonder if the mountain itself was not about to be rent in two pieces. That that very same power has actually been put inside of me. Has actually been put inside of you. It was during the announcements it was mentioned uh, Deborah Ross's baptism has been placed inside of her. If you are a baptized child of God, that power that could have rent the mountain is working now inside of you. When you understand that, it is not a large thing to think there could be miracles in this church. It is not a large thing to think there could be healings. There could be speaking of foreign languages that we don't know. There could not be raisings from the dead. When you understand that at Pentecost, the light wasn't at a distance. The fire wasn't on the mountain. The fire was on the people. And the Spirit was in the people. Another important difference related to that was the centrality of the law in both cases. And it's easy to think, well, no, it wasn't really in the second Pentecost. You know, where was the law there? Well, the law absolutely was present. Um, In fact... Well, for the sake of time, I won't turn there. I encourage you. Well, actually, if you've seen the Ten Commandments, then you know. Uh, The Cecil B. DeMille told us and showed us that the Ten Commandments were written with the finger of God. I challenge you. The Bible says that in more than one place. Don't look it up right now. There's a sermon going on, but put in your notes and do look that up. Don't believe me. But God with his own finger. And I have to believe it did not look like Cecil B. DeMille 
depicted it. I just don't think it was a fire tornado and this kind of fire snake, even though I still admit that scene does give me goosebumps. I don't think it was like that. But we do know because the Bible says the Ten Commandments were actually written with God's own finger on stone and were written there at the mountain and given to Moses to take to the people. And yet God knew that wouldn't be enough. I think I used this verse not too long ago. Let's turn there again anyway to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. And if you'll indulge me, I'm going to do the flippy thing one more time. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5. I'll try to get the book and chapter right this time. Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're going to have God noticing something. And then I also want you to, in the other part of your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Now, Deuteronomy is, to me, fascinating because it gives a retelling of what happened with the uh, giving of the Ten Commandments, but gives some details that weren't present in the first telling of the tale. And one of them was God's response to the people, his private response shared with Moses. Because God gives the Ten Commandments. We already read how the people responded. They said, oh, go tell God we're going to do everything that he says. Please just don't make us talk to him directly anymore. And so we read God's response to that in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse, starting in verse 28. It says there in Deuteronomy 5, 28, And the Eternal heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Eternal said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. What were those words? Those words were, we will obey you. And he says, they are right in all that they have spoken. And then this comment. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and their children forever. And then he said to them, return to your tents. He knew that for all this impressive display he had done, one of the hardest places to truly impress and change is the human heart. And that Pentecost, it was not achieved. And we know through the rest of Israel's history, after that Pentecost, it was not achieved. But then we see that God addressed that in the later Pentecost because he established the beginnings of the new covenant at that time. And Hebrews chapter 8, and we see in verse 7, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 8 and verse 7, but into the second, sorry, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7, right chapter. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been found for a second. But finding fault with them, they were the source of the problem. We just read about it in Deuteronomy 5, verse 29. For all the impression, for all the fear and all the trembling, their heart was not changed. And so what does he say? Jump down to verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Eternal. I will put my laws in their mind and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Both Pentecosts are similar in that God began a process where he is writing his very laws with his own divine finger. But what's different between the two Pentecosts is the latter one began a time when he is personally on your heart and on your mind writing those laws. 
with his finger. I read that and remember that as much as I know I don't deserve it, I actually have the Creator God, the Eternal One, the Ever-Living One, the One who designed all I see, every molecule of air that I breathe in, He has created, and I have that One of all power and majesty and glory, and He has deigned to be willing with His own finger to write His laws again, but actually on my heart and on my mind through His Holy Spirit, which is no longer at a distance on a mountain, but is here and is there and is there and is there. The difference in the Pentecosts is important. And one last thing as we wrap up. If you turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, Another similarity, but an important difference. The last scripture we'll look at, Acts chapter 2. In the Pentecost some time ago, 3,500 years ago, it was God who was speaking. It was God Himself making His thoughts, His desires, His passions known from His own mouth. It was God, through His Spirit, how He interacts with people on the mountain who was actually speaking, this spiritual being on the mountain. But even though it was people talking in the second Pentecost, it was still God speaking. I'm not saying using them as puppets, but it was God who inspired those words. It says right there in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4. Again, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Those two Pentecosts are similar in that it's a reminder that the beautiful truth of the gospel comes from God. But in that difference, we see that God is now speaking through people. He's using the mouths of human beings. And yet he is still in charge of that. It's, he still has a message to give. But now he's working through individuals in which his spirit resides. It's so easy to lose sight of Pentecost amidst all the other exciting holy days, but we shouldn't. On Pentecost, God began a process. There in the past, it was this terrifying God on a mountain with fire and thunder who wrote His laws with His own finger on tablets of stone to give to the people. But who has become, as we see in the other Pentecost, a God who doesn't dwell at a distance on a mountain but dwells within you with His Son. A God who still writes His laws, but He writes them on the tablet of your heart and writes them with the care and concern of not simply just some divine being at a distance, but as your Father who loves you. Let us thank God for the day of Pentecost. Let's thank Him for moving His power, His law, and His presence from the mountain into His children.